You may notice we're not studying the Gospel of John this morning. So, what's going on? Well, uh, in the evening service, we are working through the book of Deuteronomy and happen to be on the Ten Commandments. And for many of you, I'm sure, as well as my own life, uh, the study of the Ten Commandments has been a surprising and wonderful blessing. Of course, I love the Word of God. I love His law. Um, but it's surprising that I've, I've, I've been stirred up in my soul to love God well and to serve Him in greater, greater ways than, than I could have anticipated. Uh, it's a work of God for sure. And who would have thought that a study of the law, of the commandments, would revive the soul of God's people. And yet that's what's happening. And it, in a sense, I'm not surprised because the first great awakening, many of you know the, the message of George Whitfield was not um, primarily an exposition of uh, the redemptive work of Christ, although it was, of course, that's the gospel. But his primary message was, you must be born again. Who would have thought that focusing on God's sovereignty and salvation would bring about a great revival? Uh, who would have thought that focusing on the commandments of God would bring about a stirring of God's people? And yet we shouldn't be surprised because this is exactly what we see through all of the prophets. Indeed, God Himself, Christ Himself, calls the people back to the law of God. So in a way, this should not surprise us, I don't think. So why am I studying the fourth commandment? Um, we're on the fourth commandment in the evening service. We are going to talk about the fourth commandment in the evening service. But it was such a crushing study for my own heart. Such um, words filled my soul that it felt like a crisis um, which had to be addressed, and not specifically Meadow Creek, but the Christian church in general. Uh, so that is why, um, that is why I want to focus on the fourth commandment, not only this morning, but also in the evening. We love God's commandments. Jesus said that anyone who does not, who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Those who love Christ will obey Christ, will obey His commands. And His commands are not His own, He says. They belong to the Father. You see what the Father says in the moral law, Christ says to us as well. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot or iota will pass from the law. And we are not to relax any one of these commandments or teach anyone to do the same. Unfortunately, this, I believe, is what has happened with the fourth commandment. It has been relaxed. And what is our primary beef with the fourth commandment? It's not scriptural. It's our flesh. Our flesh repels against any restraint of what we want. Especially on the Lord's day. So why do we obey God again? This is all just by means of introduction. We obey God's law because He's the sovereign King. He says this in the prelude to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord 
your God. He's the King. He's the Lord. He is the I Am. So we obey Him. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We obey Him because He's our Redeemer. He's redeemed us. But He also says, I'm the Lord, your God. You see, He's our God. He's covenanted with us. And for these reasons, we obey the commandments with great joy, with reverence and joy and trembling. The first commandment, He's the object of our worship. He's the one who is to be worshipped. In the second commandment, He tells us the means by which He is to be worshipped. No graven images. The regulative principle is based on the second commandment. We only do in worship what He has commanded us to do. The third commandment, we see the manner of His worship. His name is to be reverenced in awe and wonder in all the ways that He's revealed Himself to us. And on the fourth commandment, we see the time of His exclusive worship. And notice the pattern in each one of the commandments. The first commandment, I am, therefore you shall not. The second commandment, you shall not because I am. The third commandment, you shall not because the Lord shall not. And the fourth commandment, you shall and you shall not. You shall honor the Sabbath day. You shall not work. Because the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, all that we shall or shall not do is based on God. It's based on God's holiness. It's a a reflection of who God is. That's why we obey the commandments. Because it reflects God's righteousness and His holiness and His justice and His goodness and His love for God's people. It's a reflection of Himself. So because of that, because of who God is, we shall strive to obey Him and honor Him and love Him and serve Him. So I'm going to use Exodus 20, the first time we see the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 as our text for this morning, although I will reference Deuteronomy 5 as well. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is inspired. Recognize that this was written by Moses thousands of years ago and preserved by the Holy Spirit for you this day. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. Please be seated. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to You again as we do every week. And we ask that You indeed would give us wisdom. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight. That You would use this Word for Your own glory. May Your Word accomplish all for which You have ordained it this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, I believe... 
the modern crisis of the church, this rejection of the fourth commandment, this rejection of the Lord's day as a meaningful time of worship, a whole day set apart for God in His worship. This was basically uncontested. We never argued about principles of the Lord's day until about the end of the 20th century. For hundreds of years, we only, we only debated application. And now even the principles of the Lord's Day are being assailed. Well, we're going to talk about why. My goal this morning is to just establish the doctrine of the Lord's Day and to impress it upon your hearts. This evening, we're going to talk about specific applications and some of the other, um, I guess, arguments against seeing the Lord's Day as part of the moral law of God. We honor the Lord's Day, and I guess this is just the bottom line up front. We honor the Lord's Day primarily because God made it holy. God made it holy. He honored the, He sanctified the, the Sabbath and made it holy. And this shows us something of Himself. He's holy, and He made one day and seven distinctive and set apart from all the others. It, it shows us something about what it's like for God to be set apart from all of creation. And it also sets apart God's people from the culture. Dr. John Gerstner uh, has spoken often on the Sabbath, and you can find many of his lectures online. Uh, he has one lecture in particular on the Sabbath where he just reads all of the Old Testament Scriptures on the Sabbath and on the Lord's Day and what it means to honor the Lord on that day, and you can't but be struck by the reverence and the awe that should be attached to the worship of God on His day. 159 times in the Old Testament, Sabbath rest or Sabbath, the Lord's day, is mentioned. The Scriptures all represent such solemnity and reverence for God's character and His law and especially His day that we Followers of Christ are to be gravely warned. We rejoice with trembling on the Lord's day. And the exile of Israel was in large measure because of a neglect of the Sabbath. Downstairs in Sunday school, we talked about Ezekiel 19 and the punishment that was coming. Well, in Ezekiel 20, what you will hear next time is God outlining all of the ways that Israel has failed. And they have failed again and again in honoring the Sabbath day. I've been crushed by this teaching. I'll be frank with you. There is, um, there's been such a neglect of the Sabbath for the majority of my life uh, that I'm ashamed and dismayed by it. If you remember when Josiah, King Josiah, they, they found the book of the law and it had been hidden. It had been gone for for decades, and they brought it to him and he read it and he, and he rent his clothes and he humbled himself before the Lord. That's the nature of my heart this morning. There are almost 2,000 PCA churches in America. 2,000. Only 238 even have an evening service. 238. We're the PCA. This should be shocking. This... This is a thunderclap to my ears and to my mind. 
even 70 years ago. I grew up, every church I went to as a child, we had a morning and an evening service. We weren't even Presbyterians. We were Christian people. I would say 50 to 70 years ago, you would find near universal acceptance of a morning and evening worship service in almost every denomination, in every church in America, but especially Presbyterian denominations. And even those who weren't Christians stopped working. Now we don't even see evening worship on the Lord's Day in the vast majority of PCA churches. But the lack of an evening service is not the root of the problem. It's just a symptom. It just shows the problem. The problem is God's holiness is just lightly resting upon us. His Word just is so easy to us. We've embraced culture. We've embraced self. And we don't value God. We don't value His Word. Especially His commands regarding His Sabbath day. His Lord's day. You've heard this before. David Wells writes about this problem. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique or insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And His Christ is too common. The flow of blood is also flowing from our absolute rejection as a culture of the fourth commandment, of the Lord's day. And I'm joined by many others in every age of the church who argue that the weakness of the church is due in large measure to our rejection of the law of God and to the Lord's day, our Sabbath observance, primarily. I called a brother um, who you know, and I was telling him of this this storm in my soul. And I said, brother, I feel like it's a crisis, not just for Meadow Creek, but for all of the churches in America, of the world maybe. Am I overreacting? And he said, no, it is a crisis. And he said, be careful, because once you start preaching the commandments of God, people are going to leave the church. People are going to call you legalistic. People are going to do all kinds of things because our flesh hates it. And I said, well, I know our church. We're not like that. If God brought about destruction on Israel for careless and sloppy Sabbath keeping and worship, we can certainly expect God to bring discipline to our own churches and our own nation, or at a minimum to withhold the blessing that we should be experiencing. Some of the blessings should be, should be ours, and it's not because we fail to worship God well. The holiness of God, the holiness of of the Lord's day has been exchanged for our own pleasure and our own desires. God tells us what our rest should like, but we know what we want our rest to look like. And it's very different. For most who call themselves Christians, I believe the Lord's day isn't really the Lord's day. It's my own day. It's another Saturday with maybe two hours of church thrown in there somewhere. It's for me and my play and my worldliness and my entertainment because that's how I rest. May God help us. 
May God help us. So, I haven't even got to the first point yet. So I'm going to attempt to bring the Sabbath, the Sabbath principles before your eyes today and to, to show how this exalts Christ and it lifts up our Lord. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath to the glory of Christ and His worship and His holiness. We embrace the Lord's Day. So the first point, we're going to look at first the permanence of the moral law. This is the first question I believe we have to understand is, does the moral law still bind us? I know many of you already understand this, but it's foundational. Nobody is justified by observing the moral law. Nobody is saved by, by how well they obey the law. But once you've been regenerated, once God has changed your heart, the moral law becomes sweet and precious to us. We're God's chosen people. We love God's law. It's a mirror to us. It shows us our sin and it drives us to the cross. And this isn't a one-time thing. As Gary Randalls told me when I first got here, Gary, I'm going to quote you. Sorry, I didn't ask you about this. He said, Richard, the gospel's for every day. And it struck me. That's exactly what happens when you look at the law. It brings you to the gospel every day. We're his people. And this reflects his heart, including the fourth commandment. It reflects God's heart. It shows us something of his holiness. All the moral law. All Ten Commandments. It's also a message of the New Testament. Of course, Jesus valued highly every commandment and obeyed them perfectly. But in 1 John chapter 2, we see the apostles. This is John speaking. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. 1 John 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And certainly in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, he talks about those commandments in a way that is very, he works like our catechism does from, from big to small. And he says, yes, this does mean loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But he's reflecting all of the commandments in these passages. He's not reducing the commandments. Christ told him not to do that, to minimize any of the commandments. He's basically saying, this is more expansive than you can imagine. And it's all loving God. In all loving, your neighbor. Those who love God and know Him will keep His commandments. So as we reflect on His character and His holiness and the moral law, we are encouraged by God Himself. But we also need to look at this. The moral law was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Uh, Dr. Vodi Bakum, he, he says this so much better than I will, but... He talks about how it's not as if God watched the fall and then He watched humankind before the flood and then He finally calls His people and brings them to Sinai. And He's like, you know what? These people need... I'll give you ten rules just to kind of keep you on track here because it's not going well. No, Romans tells us the moral law was written on our hearts in the heart of every image bearer. And especially the Sabbath day, honoring the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is part of God's creation ordinance. The moral law is not a result of the fall. It reflects God's holiness and His righteousness from the very beginning. 
This wasn't God just giving us helpful advice after observing our failures as humans. Rather, it's written on our hearts. And in Christ, we see this perfect combination of duty and delight. It's, it's trembling and it's rejoicing. The law is spiritual and the fourth commandment is spiritual. So, if the fourth commandment is not binding on the Christian, then we have to take one of two positions. Either the whole Decalogue, the whole Ten Commandments, is abrogated. It doesn't count. We, we become antinomians, anti-law. And there are Christians who are like this. They say the whole law just doesn't matter. Uh, this is one of the features of early dispensationalism, is that everything before the second chapter of Acts when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church in the upper room. Everything before that was for Israel. And everything after that's for the church. Well, of course, we don't believe that. We don't believe that at all. The whole Word of God is for the people of God. But that's one of your options. If you don't think that the fourth commandment is binding on Christians today, then that has to be one of the things you go to. Well, the whole law is just not binding on us. If you don't accept that, then you have to accept the fact that the fourth commandment is not part of the moral law. You see, Jesus really only meant nine of the commandments when He said, unless one of these laws passes away before the end of the time. right? He, he only meant nine of the commandments. He didn't mean that one, that fourth commandment. He didn't mean that one. So you either have to say the whole law has been abrogated or the fourth commandment just really isn't part of the moral law. It occupies a different position from the other nine commandments. Those are the only two options. But I would argue that it is part of the moral law. The moral law is permanent. The ceremonial law has been abrogated. And we take the general equity of the civil laws that were used to govern Israel. But the moral law is permanent for God's people. God didn't add the fourth commandment to the ceremonial law and just add it into the Ten Commandments just to pull it back out again. No, there's something special about the Sabbath day. It's, it's all rooted in creation. God blessed and hallowed that day. If He made the day holy, clearly there's a moral character to it. God gives it a moral character. It's binding in paradise and it's binding to the end of the world. It was binding on Sinai, and it will be binding until the end of the world. And it's not only about not doing things or doing things. It's about the attitudes of our hearts as we look at God. It's spiritual. So let's look at the placement of the moral law, or the placement of this Sabbath command. It's an explicit command. If you look at your text, Look at verse 11, 10 and 11. It's a very explicit command. Sorry, verse 8. He placed it in the very heart of the commandments. It's in the middle of the commandments. In a way, it's the transition from the first table and the second table. And I would argue that all... Well, it's not just me. Theologians argue that the first three commandments all culminate on the Sabbath day. The Lord's day. We honor God as the only God. The first commandment. And on the Lord's day, that's our entire focus. We worship God in the manner He's prescribed to us in His Word. Second commandment. And on the Lord's day, we do that corporately and all day. 
We worship God using all the means whereby He makes Himself known to us. The third commandment, we honor His name. And on the Lord's day, His name is to be honored all day. We worship in the name of Christ. We honor and glory His words and His person and His work. All this comes together most especially on the Lord's day. That's why it's in the middle of the commandments. Also note, it's the longest of all the commandments. By far the longest of the commandments. And in Hebrew narrative, and in Hebrew command and law, often, not always, but often, the length of a command measures an emphasis or importance. And unlike the rest of the commands, also notice this. It's not only written in the negative, but it's written in the positive. Of course, every command has a duty required and something prohibited, something to be restrained. Do not murder also implies that we have a duty to preserve the life of our neighbor. But in the fourth commandment, God Himself tells us both our duty and what is forbidden. Such is the importance of the fourth commandment. And it's written on the consciences of all men. This is really my comfort as I was praying, of course, a little bit... Um, fearful to preach something that seems so counter-cultural uh, even to God's people. And my comfort was, but those who have the Holy Spirit, though their flesh may react, eventually their, their spirit will embrace the law of God. It's written on your conscience. And if you have the Holy Spirit within you, God will do His work as He did in my own life. This commandment will be enlivened in the heart of every believer who hears it and embraces it. Okay, let's look at the text. Um, Exodus 20. This brings our second point. Remember the Sabbath day. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and blessed, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. So what do we know about this word remember? Well, God is basically saying this isn't a new command. Remember? Remember what? Remember what I said in the garden. Remember what I said after I created everything. Remember the Sabbath day. From the very beginning, one day in a week was set apart for worship. It was holy. It was set apart. The Scriptures give strong evidence that the Sabbath was observed from Adam to Moses, even though it wasn't explicitly laid out. The people to remember, the people were to remember this command. There are a couple of really good resources on the back table, by the way, if you're, you're wanting to study more. And I'll send out some, some videos as well. But they highlight many of these points. Remember the Sabbath day. On six days, for six days the Lord created, and on the seventh day He rested. That's something else that we should find very unique about this commandment. So, anyone, whether they're Christians or not, if you lived 5,000 years ago, you would you would learn what a day was, wouldn't you? The sun goes down, the sun comes up, the sun goes down again. You would see this over and over and over, and you would be able to look at nature and go, 
that's a day. My life is made up of these days. And you would also, eventually, if you paid close attention, you'd be able to discern what a month is. You would look at the moon, and you would see the, the moon and the lunar changes that happen. And it's tied to months. I think that's the root of the word moon. It's tied to months, and or they're tied to the same root word. But anyway, you'd be able to discern what a month is by looking at nature. And if you paid real close attention, again, this is Dr. Vody Bauckham. He says it so, so well. But if you paid really close attention, you would, you'd be able to discern what a year is. You'd see the four seasons, and then you'd see this repetition. Well, it's hot now again, and it's hot now again. And Oh, look, it's been this many months. You could discern a year just by looking at nature. But I ask you, how would you ever discern a week? There's nothing in nature that shows you a week. There's nothing in nature that shows you six days and a day of rest. A week was just divine revelation. This is God telling His people what their life will look like. And the pattern is the same. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days devoted to your own work, one day devoted to God. But we forget. That's why he tells us to remember, because we forget. We're easy to forget. God's people have always been quick to forget. And this is one, it's the only commandment where he says, remember this. Isn't that fascinating? It's the one command that's the most rejected today. And it's the one command where God says, remember. Remember. The prophets, what do the prophets do? They're God's kind of covenant enforcers. That's how you can look at every prophet. Calling God's people back to His covenant. Calling God's people back to right relationship. Back to the law. Hosea does that. Wanting the people to remember. Hosea 4.6 He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you for being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. We're called to remember God's commands and remember especially the Sabbath day. So how did we get to this place where the Sabbath rest is largely rejected? Well, we've done what it's not new. We've done what God's people have done throughout the millennia. We've forgotten. If you've read through Kings recently, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see each king. And you remember the king is presented and what does it say? This king did right in the eyes of the Lord. Or this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But something that should strike you over and over and over and over again is the mention of the high places. You might wonder, what in the world are high places? Well, God had said that only the altar in front of the temple was the place to sacrifice. But the people, for their own convenience, had made other altars in other places called high places. And they would just go there because it was actually too far to go to Jerusalem. And it was too much work to get in line and to do everything required at the temple, whatever. So they made high places. These were blasphemous to the worship of God. 
and over and over and over, at least a dozen times. It's mentioned even the good kings. 1 Kings 3.3, Solomon loved the Lord, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. 1 Kings 15, hundreds of years later, the high places were not taken down. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true. 1 Kings 22, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. This is another king, and the high places were not taken away. 2 Kings 12, again, hundreds of years later. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. You see, it's been happening so long, they've just forgotten. But once the law of God is put in front of them, there were a couple courageous kings who said, no, we will not do this. 2 Kings 18, verse 4, Hezekiah removed the high places. And 2 Kings said there was no other king like Hezekiah. And then what happened? His son, 2 Kings 21, rebuilt the high places. 2 Kings 23, Josiah broke down the high places. This continuing battle with the high places it's just a reflection of the human heart. We want to do things that we want to do the way we want to do it. And the law of God is repellent to us. One of our high places in this modern day is our desire to do our own work and our own pleasure on God's day. And that's why God tells us at the very end of the first table of the law, remember, Remember, let's look at the third point. The Sabbath actually commemorates the work of God. Creation, redemption, consummation are all presented in terms of Sabbath rest. The text in Exodus focuses on creation. The Deuteronomy portion of the law focuses on redemption. The two great benefits of our religion, really, creation and redemption and in Hebrews, it talks about a, a, a permanent rest that's coming, our eternal rest in the consummation. So look at the reason given in Exodus chapter 20 for honoring the Lord's day. It says in verse 11, because of God's created order, He worked for six days. Of course, work being in parentheses or in quotations, He's not actually working but it's as an example for us. So Exodus, the, the fourth commandment, commemorates our Creator. And these creation ordinances have lasting authority on man. What were the creation ordinances? What did He tell Adam and Eve to do before the fall? Work. And that's said three times in this commandment. Work, 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 work. Work is one of the creation ordinances. We are, Adam and Eve were called to work, to, to have dominion, to work. Marriage was a creation ordinance before the fall. And then the Sabbath. And is it any wonder that every single one of these has been a target of Satan's attacks ever since? This isn't new. You look at marriage today and you're like, wow, Satan really hates marriage. This is a new crazy thing. No, read the Bible. Marriage has always been hated by Satan. And he's always sought to warp and, to, and crush it. Jesus actually 
goes back to the same argument that I'm making, that the creation ordinances are permanent. When he's talking to the Pharisees about divorce and marriage, Jesus doesn't reference primarily the law of Moses, but creation. Remember he said, in the beginning it was not so. His argument is basically that what God established in creation at the beginning regarding marriage is permanent forever. It binds all men everywhere for all time. These foundational principles of the created order, work and marriage and Sabbath, they're, they're, they're woven into the warp and woof of the universe. So to violate these ordinances is a grievous sin. So the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Creation is the focus. Before the fall, the very first worker and rester, it's not Adam. Who is it? God. Work is mentioned three times in this commandment. All before the fall. Sabbath, again, is mentioned before the fall. It's not because of the fall and because of our fallen nature that we just get really tired and we got to rest one day. No, it's before the fall. We're made in His image, so we honor God and rest. We devote our day to the God. It's set apart for His holy worship. And Exodus chapter 20 sounds much like Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that He had done in creation. So God sanctified that day and made it holy. It's not at, at Mount Sinai that He gave the people their command to rest. It's a creation ordinance. So to disregard the Sabbath is to disregard the created order. If you, if you think somehow that the Sabbath rest is no longer for God's people, I would argue, like Jesus, in the beginning it was not so. But also look at the Sabbath with regard to creation. And Adam, the fourth commandment states, it's been enforced since the beginning of time. God, by His own example, hallowed it and followed it. And for Adam and Eve, it was a day of rest and uninterrupted worship. But note too that Adam was created on what day? What day was Adam created? The sixth day. Did you know that, Felicity? Adam was created on the sixth day. Did you Vaughn kids know that? I'm sure you did. So on the first day, he created the universe. And it took until the sixth day before he created Adam and Eve. And then the very next day was the seventh day. It was a day of rest. So think about that. Adam and Eve's very first day on the earth. Their first full day was a day of rest. But then the fall happened. And then the pattern shifted. And we see in the law of Moses that they have to wait until the seventh day for rest. They're looking forward to rest. And of course, this points to Christ. And the rest, the spiritual rest that we have in Jesus. So if Adam and Eve, in their unfallen state, before the fall, if Adam and Eve if God said you need one day of worship and rest, a holy day of rest, 
How much more do we fallen creatures need to honor this day and trust God? As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. God gave us this day because He knows what we need. It's good for man. And no wonder Satan has always sought to destroy or warp God's design for Sabbath rest. He knows it's part of our created nature. This is what God has outlined for us. Have any of you heard of the old French Enlightenment um, philosopher named Voltaire? Voltaire, he was, he was definitely part of the Enlightenment, which was a humanistic and atheistic movement at its core. And Voltaire, he didn't like the church. And he said that if someone has or was ever going to be able to destroy Christianity, the first thing he had to do, Voltaire said, was destroy the Sabbath. As long as Christians hold the Sabbath, they will not be dissuaded from their faith. And that's what happened. Adam disobeyed. He lost his rest and his fellowship with God. And he had to wait for his Redeemer. So, the Sabbath commemorates creation in Exodus. But if you look in Deuteronomy 5, it also commemorates our redemption. And it, the wording is almost exactly the same, only God gives us another reason for observing the Sabbath. He says in Deuteronomy 5.12, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, therefore God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the redemption of God's people is the focus. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. It's part of our perpetual covenant relationship with God. He says over and over in Exodus and Leviticus, makes this point, I've purchased you, I've brought you, I've, made, I've covenanted with you, so keep my Sabbath. And the New Testament says we've been bought with a price as well, so we should glorify God with our bodies, with our lives. So this first day of the week, this day of our redemption, is one that we would honor to the end of time. And it has transitioned to the first day of the week. We'll talk more about this later. But finally, on the Lord's Day, we look forward to the consummation. In Revelation 14 a voice said, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. You see, when we're in heaven, we will be rested. Fully rested forever. It's, a, it's an eternal Sabbath. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. So I made three points so far. It's part of the moral law. We're to remember it because God knows we're forgetful. And it also reflects much about God and His work on the earth. But fourthly, is this commandment really for us? This is my last point. Is, is this commandment really for us? Wasn't it repealed? Like that's the argument really today. It's, it's been repealed. It doesn't mean what it says it means. We should remember that this commandment, like all of them, was written on the stone with the finger of God. It was spoken by the mouth of God from the cloud and deposited into the Ark of the Covenant. This is part of God's moral law. It's part of His Sabbath. Holiness. The apostles kept the Sabbath. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It's interesting that when Christ was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24.20, He says, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. 
So he's talking to Christians, not Jews. He's talking to his apostles, his disciples. And this is going to happen 30 years later. Jesus knew that the church would be already, the New Testament church would be well established 30 years after his death. And he says, pray that this might not occur on a Sabbath. We don't know exactly why. Maybe they would hesitate from traveling on a Sabbath during this holy day of rest. But still, he applies this Sabbath to the church, doesn't he? It hasn't been repealed. Interesting, too, that the Old Testament prophecies about the Messianic kingdom, the New Testament kingdom, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah mention the Sabbath. There's a number of them. Isaiah 56, I'll highlight for you. On And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, that's us, to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to My covenant, these I'll bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 66, and so many other prophecies that are clearly Messianic, mentions a Sabbath worship for His people. But we have the clear teaching of Jesus as well. Matthew 5, 17-19. That all of the law will never pass away until it's all accomplished. In other words, until heaven and earth pass away. And we'll talk about some of the other things that Jesus said about Sabbath this evening. So besides all the Scriptures, I think also just common sense would tell us, and this can't be a proof text for the doctrine, but just think through it. Is it. Does it sound like God, what you know of God, to remove one commandment out of ten and say, this one's not for you anymore? It just doesn't make any sense. So what do we have? We have a Christian Sabbath. We have one day of the week. The first day of the week. Well, how did we get the first day from the last day of the week? What happened? Well, like all of the commandments, what we have in the Ten Commandments is a moral principle. This is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus highlights the moral principle and then He expounds on that moral principle. What's the moral principle of the Fourth Commandment? Is the moral principle actually Saturday? Is that the moral principle? The Saturday, that's the thing. No, of course not. The moral principle is six days of work and one day of holy rest. Well, how did it change then? Well, Jesus, the apostles, they changed it. Well, how come it's not explicitly stated that they changed it? Well, how come it's not explicitly stated that there's a trinity? Right? It's, it's one of these doctrines that you just read the Scriptures and the whole council of Scripture shows you that this is true. Adam's first full day of Sabbath rest was the very first day of his life. And now we have been given that back. Christ was dead on the Saturday. And the old Saturday Sabbath stayed in the grave with Him. He rose on the first day. And of course, that's the reason why we celebrate and why the apostles celebrated on the first day of the week. Now we no longer look forward to our rest on Saturday. Now we, we worship on the day of our rest and work out of that rest the rest of the week. 
So God changed the day. And the actual day, the Saturday, is not the particular moral principle. The moral principle is honoring God one day out of seven. Well, how can He change that day? Well, as Jesus said Himself, He's the Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. This is His day. John records that Jesus appeared to His disciples on the Sabbath, on the new Christian Sabbath day, on the Sunday. And then the very next Sunday, He appeared to His disciples again. Many would argue that every one of His resurrection appearances was on a Sabbath, on a Christian Sabbath, on a Sunday. Pentecost was on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday. And then we see the apostles talking about gathering every first day of the week for the collection for the saints. On the first day of the week, breaking bread, the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, and preaching. Paul talking with them until midnight. Why until midnight? Because that was the end of the Lord's Day. Even we see in Revelation 1 that the Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What's that all about? He was on an island all by himself being punished. There was no church. It was just John. But he knew that he was with God's people on the Lord's Day in the Spirit. The apostolic example is binding on the church today. That's why we also worship on the Lord's Day. Ignatius, who was the earliest post-New Testament of the church fathers, he was a disciple of John. He knew John. He was trained by John. Ignatius writes, let everyone that loves Christ keep holy the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. You see, it's been this way since Christ was resurrected. We've worshipped on Sunday, the Lord's Day. It's been our Christian Sabbath. And this was divinely appointed by the Holy Ghost and communicated by the apostles. So let me conclude with this. Sorry, I've gone over just a bit. The main reason we worship on the Lord's Day is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord of the Sabbath gave the churches the Lord's Day. Thomas Watson writes, The glory of the redemption was greater than the glory of creation. Great wisdom was seen in making us, but more miraculous wisdom was seen wisdom was seen in us great power was seen in bringing us out of nothing but greater power in helping us when we were worse than nothing it cost more to redeem us than to create us in creation it was but speaking a word in redeeming there was a shedding of blood creation was the work of god's fingers redemption was the work of his arm in creation god gave us ourselves in redemption god gave us himself by creation, we have life in Adam. By redemption, we have life in Christ. By creation, we had a right to an earthly paradise, but by redemption, we have a title to a heavenly kingdom. So Christ might well change the seventh day of the week into the first, as it puts us in mind of this great redemption, which is more glorious than the work of creation. The whole purpose of this day is to honor our holy God, brothers and sisters. We fix our gaze and all of our energy on God the whole day. Our thoughts and our words and our deeds are directed to God. We're to honor this day and keep it holy. To set it apart because God did. And we love our God. 
We're to dedicate this day to His worship. Tonight I'm going to break down specifically duties and and really the failures of the church. Uh, You might think, well, is this a... It sounds like a new teaching. Well, for our culture, this is new. But it's all just straight out of the Scriptures. And it's exactly compliant with our, our doctrine, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. This isn't new. This has been the Lord's Day. And the Sabbath has been divinely appointed since the very beginning. So today I would ask you, Consecrate this day to God as holy. Focus your energies not on your own pleasures. You may say, well, I've never done that my whole life. Ask God to help you. Not to blaspheme this day of all days. Focusing on your own pleasure. Focusing on your own words. But focus on Christ. You say you love Jesus. Obey His commandments. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Ask God to enable you with all your heart to focus your words and your deeds and your thoughts on God. And you know, we talked about how this commandment begins with the word remember. So if you're feeling low right now, there's another place where this word is used in the Hebrew text, and that's Psalm 103, where it says that God remembers that we are dust. He knows. So come to Jesus today and worship Him, you who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you What? Rest. He will give you rest. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word that instructs us, corrects us, and encourages us. We thank You that You have given us one day and seven to be focused on You and Your worship. Lord, there are many in the sound of my voice who may have never, ever even tried to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy who may have just treated this day as just a day filled with with entertainment and pleasure and really having nothing to do with you except this time in church. Lord, we pray that you would change us, convict our souls, and enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we need your help. We love you and we want to worship well. Please help us, dear God. Help us. And may your word not return void, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.